0: There's two readings this evening. The first one is Psalm 57 and the second one is 1 Thessalonians 4, as you can see. So in the Red Pew Bibles, on page 455, Psalm 57. To the leader, do not destroy of David a mictam when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I take refuge until the destroying storms pass by. I cry to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame those who trample on me. God will send forth his steadfast love and his faithfulness. I lie down among lions that greedily devour human prey. Their teeth are spears and arrows, their tongues sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my soul. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is as high as the heavens. Your faithfulness extends to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And then 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 4, at verse 13 and reading through to chapter 5, verse 11, page 960 in the Bibles. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's trumpet call and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from the heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labour pains upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who are sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put to the breastplate of faith and love for the helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are asleep or awake, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other, as indeed you are doing. Amen.
1: It is one of the brutal facts of this age, a fact that uh, I think um, many people spend lots of time and energy uh, trying to avoid or suppress uh, or pretend isn't the case. It's one of the brutal facts of this age that death breaks everything. Galaxies and stars, empires and civilizations, forests and people, death stalks everything and everyone and ultimately death sinks its miserable claws into everything and everyone and it's a fundamental part of the stubbornness of the Christian faith to cling onto the conviction that that is a bad thing. Death is not natural, death is not a part of life, death is an intruder, a parasite the great enemy with which God will never do a deal. So that one way to describe the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it is God's victorious struggle to the death with death. The reality of death raises acutely the problems of meaning and justice. If everything and everyone dies and that's just the end of it, rotted out, how can we hold on to any ultimate meaning? What difference does anything make? Why not just eat and drink and be merry? For after all, tomorrow we die. On the other hand, since most people rightly find that idea unlivable, it raises the question of justice. Why do good people die just the same as bad people or even worse? Uh, Why is it that bad people, at least some, prosper, live long, comfortable lives and die peacefully in their sleep, surrounded by family and friends? Whereas plenty of good people suffer horribly and die miserable, lonely and painful deaths. And so some have said, well, there has to be a kind of life after death, perhaps life as a spirit free from all the messiness and misery that goes along with a body. Or maybe life after death, like life before death, reincarnation, where you get the justice in the next life, for good or for ill, that you escaped or escaped you in this life. And into this confusion and desperation and questioning and crisis, the Christian gospel speaks a word of clarity and power and grace. And you see it there in verse 14, which really sort of stands as a bit of a header Uh, over this entire section, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe this, that Jesus died and rose again, because that changes everything. And as the Apostle Paul spells out what that means for the Christians in Thessalonica, and teaches them, so he also teaches us. And we're going to break it out under three headings. He teaches us three things. What happens after death and the posture that that gives us in this world. When that happens and the posture that gives us in this world. And then third, the difference that it will all make in the ordinary business of life. So first then, what happens? Uh, I don't think it's terribly surprising how fascinated people are by near-death experiences. Uh, I haven't watched them for a little while, but there used to be sort of a documentary every six months or so on some, you know, recent investigation into um, these people who'd nearly died, who'd taken them right the way it seemed there and then got snatched back. I read a report of a sceptical paediatrician, Dr. Melvin Morse, spoke to a nine-year-old girl who'd been underwater for 19 minutes. I mean, 19 minutes, that's pretty much the whole of the service so far. Uh, Clinically dead, but revived, and then who gave a blow-by-blow account of the resuscitation and her experience. And and Morse has gone on to interview dozens of kids about their near-death experiences, all very interesting. But, of course, the problem is that they're not life-after-death experiences, they're just life-getting-close-to-death experiences. It's kind of like going up to the cliff, but with a rope tied on and peering over. I mean, it's, it's interesting, sure, but it's not really the whole hog. I mean, you've got to be committed here. We need someone who has actually done the deed. And of course, that is the heart and soul and centre of the Christian faith. Jesus died and rose again. He didn't get just near death. He didn't have a near-death experience. He had a death experience. He entered death fully, thoroughly, entirely and temporarily because on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And what this does for us is not just show what can happen. It's not just, the resurrection is not just showing us something, that Jesus was God or that the atonement worked or that you can have life after death. Or, I mean, it, there is that. But far more than that, the resurrection of Jesus Christ does something, much more than it shows something. It does something. It's not just a demonstration, it's an activation Because the basic Christian answer to this question, what happens after we die, is that we meet Jesus who himself died and was raised from the dead. And as as we'll read, it's an awesome experience. Not, Not the way teenagers use the word awesome, like that was a really awesome piece of toast. You know, really, actually awesome. Not not warm, fuzzy, not drawing near to a comforting light experience. Genuinely awesome. Listen to how he puts it. Chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. Uh, The particular issue that prompts uh, the apostle to write uh, about this uh, is that these uh, Christians in the Greek city of Thessalonica are grieving the death of some of their friends or family members. They're anxious that those friends or family members who've died uh, recently will somehow miss out on the blessing of God. That death is a decisive and significant enough barrier to keep them from receiving God's good gifts. Remember, this church plant is, is a month, maybe at the most two months old, And they've had a really tough time. Paul has been hounded out by a a mob. Uh, People in the church have already died. And they're worried. Have they missed out on what God has offered and that we've seized hold of this last month or two? And the apostle says, uh, really importantly, it's right to grieve. But if we know Jesus, then we grieve in what you might call an abnormal sort of way. We grieve, hopefully. We're going to come back to the issue of hope in just a moment. But here's the principle, right? Just as, even so, as the Apostle put it, just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so God will raise all the rest who have died. Now, interesting, that word for died, uh, that's uh, here three times, uh, actually, in the, these uh, verses, 13, 14, and 15, uh, in the original language, uh, the word uh, is literally fallen asleep. Uh, it's uh, the word in Greek, koimathentas, koimathentas. It's where we get our English word, chemistry, or cemetery, from. Um, we don't have a necropolis. Uh, Rookwood Cemetery is actually technically Rookwood Necropolis, Uh, polis means city and necros means dead. So Rookwood is a city of the dead. Uh, We we Christians don't have necropolis and we don't have graveyards. What we have is great big sleep cities, cemeteries. Um, There's there's, there's one right out here. There's hundreds and hundreds of people who are asleep just right out there. It's It's fantastic. This is the church, the living, mostly in here, and the dead out there. Um, What's the difference between dying and falling asleep? Which one would you rather do? The difference, pretty obviously, is that when you're asleep, you have every expectation that you'll wake up, that there is a future for you. And Paul is hinting that those who have died are in fact best thought of as merely sleeping. And so he goes on to explain, verse 15, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here is the future for those who have died. Because actually, what's in fact the case is that they've just fallen asleep. Uh, Jesus, died and rose again. That means he's alive now, right now. Uh, He's as alive. Actually, of course, he's much more alive than you're alive. And so point two, that Jesus, that Lord, will descend from heaven. Uh, I don't think we're necessarily to understand descend in a geographical sense. Uh, I don't know that Jesus will uh, travel along the lines of gravity. Uh, I'd suggest rather that the idea of Jesus descending here is that he descends spiritually heaven which is the realm of god is above us the same way that say nuclear physics is above me nuclear physics is greater higher more complex more wonderful far more deep and requiring much more intellectual firepower than i've got or at least that's what my physicists friends tell me it's above me and so when someone comes from the realm of physics down to my level what happens they descend Come down to my level. And so you see the point. If Jesus is in heaven and heaven's above us, like nuclear physics is above me, then when he comes, he comes down. He descends to meet us who are below. You see, much more important than the geography of it is the manner of it. As the Lord descends, so there is a cry of command. What do you think the cry of command that Jesus gives is as he descends? As he descends. What do you think the cry of command is? What does he say? Hello? No, he says, come out! I, you know, we're going to find out. I don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, neither do you, actually. Um, but boy, don't you think that would be a pretty great just moment if, if you're out just wandering in the cemetery here and Jesus descends and he tells all the people who are asleep out there to come out? And they come out that's the cry of command the cry of command is his command that dead people to stop being dead not not to come back to life that's i think it's not a helpful way to talk about resurrection at all they don't come back to anything they crash through out the other side of death so that like jesus death can never touch them again and then secondly is the archangel's call The archangel is the great spiritual attendant to God. It's like God's executive assistant. Except now the archangel attends Jesus, which pretty decisively tells you who Jesus is. And then there's the sound of God's trumpet. Uh, I don't think this is because God is into jazz, although who can tell? No, the trumpet of God is the sound of war. That's when you sound the trumpet, when you're off to battle. It's the sound of war, the charge in battle, and especially the sound of the royal presence in battle, leading the charge. It's an echo from the moment at which the people of Israel met with God at Mount Sinai. In other words, what the apostle is doing by using this highly charged picture language is is saying something like this. Just as when Israel met God in the past, it was awesome. It was the moment of victory over the enemies, the great superpower of the age, the Egyptians. The dealers of death. Now the Lord comes and it will be just like that except so much more awesome. And the result of this is remarkable. The dead in Christ rise from the dead just as Christ himself rose from the dead. That's the answer to the what question. What happens after we die? It's not that we're extinguished so that life is all meaningless. It's not that we float around in a kind of spiritual heaven so that embodied life is evil and dirty. No, it's not that we're reincarnated depending on how good we've been. Who could ever match up to that standard? No, we are raised. Or at least what Paul calls the dead in Christ. Are raised. And they meet Jesus in the air. Uh, the image here is of uh, an ancient um, custom uh, after the uh, victory in battle where a city that had been conquered, um, the, the, the victorious general would make an approach from outside the city walls and the leaders of the city would go out to meet the general and then turn around and escort the general back into the city that was now his city by conquest. And so you see, Paul's point, he's trying to encourage these Thessalonians who've got relatives or friends who've died and they're fearful that they're going to miss out. And Paul's saying, no, no, they get Jesus first. Because when Jesus descends, they will rise from the dead and meet him out the gate and they'll escort him back into the city so that he will join us, we who are alive at that point. his new world, his renewed world. his by the conquest of his blood. Do you see how this gives us the spiritual power to have a posture towards death that does two things at the same time which otherwise we could not do? We grieve, but we grieve with hope. You see, we grieve because we don't pretend about death. We recognise that death is an intruder and a parasite and an enemy, the enemy. Death breaks relationships, it crushes joys, it makes dreadful misery. And, and, and to not grieve, um, to be H-A-P-P-Y. Um, the way I take so many funerals here where, where those they, people who just can't quite cope with the reality of death kind of have to sort of summon up this false... Bravado and and talk about the person looking down on them and smiling and all this sort of nonsense to stop themselves from actually feeling the grief that's there at this miserable, hateful intruder death. No, we grieve. You must grieve death. You must never side with death by pretending that it's okay. That's just spiritual leprosy. We grieve. But at the same time, notice that we grieve with hope. We don't grieve in a way that turns into despair. We grieve with hope because we know that death will not have the last word for those in Christ. God will not let death win. God has not let death win. Not over Jesus. And therefore not over us who put our trust in him. Now, of course, the fact that there are the dead in Christ, as the Apostle puts it, those who have lived their lives in a trust relationship with Jesus Christ, who have known him to be their Lord and Saviour, also means that there are the dead, you see, not in Christ. There are the dead who have lived their lives not in conscious relationship and submission to Jesus who are not the recipients of the forgiveness of sins that he offers, who think that they can do a better job of running their lives than he can. And so they live unconnected to Christ and they die unconnected to Christ. What Paul has to say about the dead not in Christ is related to the second question, when this happens. You see, uh, verses 13 to 18 of chapter 4 are about the what question, what happens, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5 answer the when question. And the answer to the when question, when Jesus returns, is, don't know. Don't know. You see from verse 1, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, um, the the seasons could just mean uh, dates, times and dates. Concerning the times and the dates, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labour pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. Um, Paul uses two kind of images or pictures uh, to make one single point. Two images, the thief in the night... Um, I don't know if you've ever been burgled. For a while, uh, when we lived at Glebe, uh, we were burgled pretty much every six months. And so it was not, uh, the first time it happened was an unpleasant occasion. Uh, But then we realized that on insurance, you get all new for old. And so we always had the best cameras and the best video machines and the best TVs. And so we actually used to leave our doors open. No, no, that's not quite true. Um, Thieves come when you don't expect them. That's the whole point of thievery. You're not a very high quality thief if you go when people are expecting you to be there. It's an unexpected experience being thieved against. Uh, I have no comments to make about labour pains, uh, for the obvious reason that I have no knowledge or experience, Uh, but you understand the point that Paul is making. You don't know the time. You don't know the time. Or perhaps even more strongly than that, you can't know the time. Some things you can organise and customise and diarise, but the return of Jesus is not one of those things. You don't know the times and the dates. I don't know the times and the dates. Nobody knows the times and the dates. And that fact means that anyone who says they do know the times and the dates is kidding themselves and misleading you. We're not meant to know the times and the dates. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. It concerns the dead not in Christ, you see. And it's part of the bigger project of what God is doing as he defeats death by robbing it of its victims. You see, the outcome of this appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ um, is twofold. It's It's not just singular, it's twofold. On the one hand, there is resurrection, but on the other hand, there is destruction. Or as the Apostle puts it in verse 9, there's wrath or there's salvation. Salvation, Paul describes as being with the Lord forever. That is, enjoying the unbroken reign of the Lord of life and love as he rules over a renewed world that functions the way it was meant to in health and peace and security and grace. That's for the dead in Christ. Wrath on the other hand, is pretty much what it sounds like. It's terrible. The Christian conviction about the wrath of God comes uh, from two particular things. On the one hand, there is the fact that the world is a sufficiently spiritually diseased place that a massive dose of spiritual chemotherapy is needed. It's really important to see this. This is, this is just one of the most kind of crucial theological kind of pieces of the puzzle to put together. Wrath and salvation are not ultimately alternatives. Salvation comes through wrath because wrath is what cleans the world of its brokenness and evil and renews it to be the world of peace and love that God created it to be and that he will renew it to be. Did you see that? that? That wrath and salvation are not ultimately against each other, that would make God kind of schizophrenic. No, no, wrath is God's means of cleansing. And it has to be that way. Otherwise, the sickness and the disease of sin in this world will just keep going. The wrath of God is the purifying judgment of God on all evil. That's why the uh, Bible is... Insistent on rejoicing at the wrath of God. You're not to be embarrassed about it. You're not to be ashamed of it. You're not to think that somehow you've got to keep it under the carpet a little bit and worry about what people think about it. No, no, no. You rejoice in it because it's finally when God fixes things up. It's how God fixes things up by putting away all that is evil and broken. So on the one hand... uh, the world is a sufficiently spiritually diseased place that it needs this kind of massive dose of spiritual chemotherapy. Uh, on the other hand, the fact is that to not live connected to Christ in a trust relationship is, is not just a lifestyle choice. It's not just sort of you know, um, the way someone happened to live their lives. It is itself a moral catastrophe of the greatest and deepest order that there can be. It's a failure to do that, which is the most important thing in all the world. It's, it's a failure to live out your humanity, actually. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So you must never be ashamed of the wrath of God. You must never be embarrassed about it. And when you put these two things together, the result is inescapable. You see, this is why it's important that the, the, we, rec- we know that there is no, that we can't know the, the times and the dates. Because on the one hand, the destiny of the dead in Christ is salvation to be with the Lord forever. But the destiny of the dead not in Christ is wrath. Or what Paul in his next letter to the Thessalonians describes as separation from the presence of the Lord and the light of his glory. And so they they can't know the times and the dates, otherwise they'd mess with it. What's really interesting is that from the perspective of those who are in Christ, Paul is quite positive about the fact that we don't know the time. Not knowing when things happen is only a problem for those who aren't sure how things turn out. But that's the point. Those in Christ, whether those asleep in Christ or those awake in Christ, do know how things turn out. And so the unknownness ceases to be a problem. You see how he puts it from verse 4, But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness." So then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What happens here is that uh, this whole sort of thief in the night image that Paul starts with kind of gallops away with Paul's imagination at this point and it kind of goes off on a little bit of a a ride all on its own. Um, Paul plays with the whole day and night difference. So, so now, what he says, you see, uh, on, on the premise that night is when bad things happen. Okay, nighttime is when most crime is done. Nighttime is when most immorality is done. When do people get drunk? Well, typically they've got to work during the day. So when do they get drunk? They get drunk at night. Nighttime is when bad things happen because it's under the cover of darkness that secrecy invites sin. Uh, or on the other hand, the hour uh, being late invites sleepiness. And so Paul sort of shifts it all around a little bit and says, but you brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, you're not in darkness. You're in Jesus. And so the fact that Jesus comes like a thief in the night, guess what? It's not a problem. Because you're in the light. You're in Jesus Christ, who's the light of the world and who'll bring the bright day of God's kingdom and grace. And so that means that according to that identity, as we live out that identity, we're we're not into the things of darkness. We don't do that stuff. And instead, we put on the characteristic Christian clothes of faith and hope and love. In other words, the fact that we don't know, what it leads to is a stance of steady devotion. On the one hand, holy devotion. Because we're people of the light, we're people of the day, and so we live honourable, upright, transparent, translucent lives. We belong to Jesus, the light of the world, and so we're to live light-filled lives. But at the same time, there's just a kind of confident, resilient steadiness that's available here, because we know that Jesus will return. We don't know when, that's okay, because the issue really isn't when, it's that. And he will And that he will return means that we have a clarity of direction, a true north to our lives that gives focus and intent and meaning from the big things to the small things. Which leads to the third point. Um, One of the things I really love about uh, being a Christian is what you might call the dignity of the ordinary, uh, or maybe the beauty of the mundane. Did you notice how Paul ends his instruction here in chapter 5, verse 11? He says, therefore, encourage one another and build up each other as indeed you are doing. And I'm wondering whether um, you felt the somewhat anticlimactic effect of that. Um, Here here it is. Paul's ready. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is going to return like a thief in the night. (laughs) It's going to be awesome. There's a cry of command. There's the archangel. There's the trumpet. It's just incredible. The dead are going to rise there'll be terrible destruction and the wrath of God and therefore uh, encourage one another and, uh, and build up each other. As indeed of course you're already doing. I mean just keep doing that stuff. That's good. You're dismissed. all good. It's like seriously? That's it? It's actually exactly how he ends chapter 4. I don't know if you noticed at the end of chapter 4 he says therefore encourage each other. Okay. Um, and it's pretty much the same in chapter 4 verses uh, 9 to 12 all the way through Uh, what's the course of the christian life what's the actual pattern of the christian life he says yeah love one another as you're already doing uh aim at or more literally actually it's it's make a point of honor really make a point of honor to live a quiet life mind your own affairs Uh, the image here is of a sea quieting down after a raging storm Uh, no longer full of rage and foam. Instead, there's a calmness and a clarity of speech and action, of mind and heart. There's restraint and self-control. There's not flying off the handle and frothing and blurting. Oh, yeah, and by the way, that includes taking financial responsibility for yourself as well, not getting all panicky that the return of Jesus is going to happen tomorrow, so you therefore drop everything and get out the red carpet. No, no, you don't know when Jesus will return. That's the whole point. So just get about your business don't be dependent on anyone. Do your job. Work with your hands. And of course, that's part of what makes the case for Christ to outsiders when they bump up against people who have their lives together in this kind of orderly way. It's so incredibly undramatic, don't you think? Or maybe that's exactly the wrong way to think about it. Maybe having an ordered life, as the apostle puts it elsewhere, Of never tiring of doing what is good, of being not prone to excess, of being calm and dignified, loving sisters and brothers in Christ in the kind of sexual purity that we looked at last week, of being controlled in relation to yourself, full of love in relation to sisters and brothers in the church, full of steady intent in relation to those who don't know Christ, so that they would turn to him as the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. Maybe that kind of steady, calm, honourable, dignified life is nothing less than the fruit of the Spirit of God given to us, as the Apostle puts it. That quality and depth and radiance of ordinary life, the Apostle says, that is incredibly dramatic. That is gloriously powerful. That is fabulously spiritual. It's the beauty of the mundane. It's what a confidence in the return of Christ will lead us into. Well, uh, let's draw the threads together. Um, I think it's been a really, really good week for CCRW. At base camp, uh, our kids club this week, we had nearly 150 different kids from, uh, half from non-church families. Uh, I, I presume that's what Paul had in mind with the idea of outsiders. 60 kids new to base camp this year and what made it all happen was 50-something volunteers from across all of our congregations aged from mid-teens to mid some other decade. And you know what those volunteers did? Let me tell you what they did. They sang songs and they chopped onions and they cared for little kids missing their parents and they had discussions and they ran games and they made food and they wiped benches and bottoms and they played music and they gave talks and they led discussions and they organised craft. Pretty mundane stuff, actually, when you think about it. But it was gloriously mundane. And it was mundanely glorious. It was exactly the kind of thing that Paul here says will mark out the informed those who know what life is about, those who've lined up their lives with the true north. And of course, at the same time, many of you didn't get the opportunity to be part of Base Camp directly, apart from your prayers. Uh, you were doing exactly what the apostle says here that you should be doing as well. You are working with your hands, uh, or perhaps with your keyboards, or you're on the tools, or you're peering down a microscope, or you're dealing with patients or clients or customers or students. You are minding business and loving people and behaving properly towards outsiders. And I don't think it's too much for us to actually. I'm going to take Paul at his word here and literally encourage each other. I want to encourage you, if I can be so bold, to do that. That what you did this week, the way that we lived our life as a church this week, this kind of love, this is the thing that lives and pleases God. Not in perfect lives, that's not the point but in lives that have about them this trajectory. Lives which constitute, do you remember that phrase, an ingredient in the divine pleasure. God, I think, was okay, pretty pretty happy with CCRW this week. And so with hearts full of grace, full of his grace, with his praise on our lips, you know what that does for us? That says, okay, we're going to make this coming week. And the week after and the week after, and all the weeks that God gives us. The kind of week in which, in all the ordinariness of life, we live for his good pleasure. Because Jesus died and rose again. Amen.